0: Uh, well, I'm not hiding behind the podium, but um, they tell me that if uh, it's the only place I can stand and be hurt. So um, if my voice gives, uh, forgive me, I've been battling some sinus issues. But uh, it's great to be back. It's great to see so many students from last semester and, and uh, so many neighbors and friends from the town and members of the faculty. So uh, thank you all for coming. I saw all those people in the hall. I said, they can't be here for me. And then friends said, well, who are they here for? I don't know. Well, um, this talk kind of... Uh, had a long odyssey, just like the presidency itself. It uh, really began uh, back in December of 96. Uh, I have this terrible habit of having breakfast with the Sunday New York Times before I go out. And the cover story uh, had a title saying, The Ultimate Approval Rating by Arthur Schlesinger Jr., uh, the most recently deceased historian. I think you've all known him, known, him, known his works and such. Uh, Anyway, Bill Clinton's second inauguration was a few weeks away. The media was filled with speculation about how the first baby boomer president might might, uh, act in a second term. And the president himself was out uh, opining all over the place about legacies. He was said to be obsessed with his legacy, Mr. Clinton. Apparently he'd read books about all of his predecessors, was trying to figure out how do I make the, the, uh, the short list of the greats without a war and those kinds of things. Well, the newspaper asked Lessinger to replicate a survey uh, his father had done all the way back in 1948 and updated in 1962, where they asked uh, a number of historians to place each of the nation's presidents, the incumbent at the time was Harry Truman, he was exempted from the poll, uh, to, to evaluate all the presidents, put them in one of five categories. Great, near, near great, average, below average, and failure. Now... Prior to the elder Schlesinger's pioneering of this rating game business uh, back in 1948, uh, perhaps as early as with uh, Henry Lee in his description of Washington as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen, people began speaking of great presidents and failed presidents. With the advent of the Schlesinger-type survey, however, they no longer had to make a case as to what made a president good or bad. All they had to do was rely on the, quote, experts. Uh, Reporters and writers of textbooks are only too happy to oblige, rushing the results of the latest surveys into print, often competing surveys into print, without a line of interpretation. Slowly, the air of authoritativeness the surveys conveyed replaced critical reason and argument among most readers, save for those who happen to be specialists on one or more presidencies. What student, maybe other than mine uh, perhaps, uh, uh, would, um, in this age of uh, authoritativeness, uh, dare make a case for a uh, weaker president being a stronger president when his professor, his textbooks, and everybody who, uh, in his field tells him, yeah, but the president's, uh, the surveys put Mr. Truman in this kind of a box. Now, with the glaring exception of Dwight Eisenhower, whose ratings have risen significantly in the view of historians since 1962 and 1998, 96. Uh, once a president falls into a category, he seems to stay there for eternity. Now, about Mr. Eisenhower, you know, presidents matter, presidents make differences, and so occasionally political scientists. And, you know, the best thing that ever happened to Ike since his two landslides is Fred Greenstein. Uh, when, I, when I was here, Fred was starting his book on, on Eisenhower, and I have to tell you, he was swimming up two streams, you know, with, with the stream of political scientists. Who always jumped over Eisenhower and the stream of historians always thought it was too boring to cover. <laughs> and then Fred actually went out to the library. He said, you know, there was more there than meets the eye. So occasionally a political scientist can make a difference. But some of the others have not found a Fred, and they're still sort of, you know, cast in stone. Now one myth that has made it into contemporary lore in recent years is that um, historians over time have changed their view of Mr. Eisenhower's predecessor, uh, Harry Truman. Uh, not so. Uh, he was exempted from the 48 poll, as I just told you. By 1962, uh, the, uh, uh, that he was out of office uh, a little more than a dozen years. Uh, by 1962, he was um, among the near greats where he remains. What is true though is the public's rating of Mr. Truman has changed significantly. Now, when he was president, in the last year of his presidency, uh, Gallup put him in the lowest uh, rank yet ever received by a president 22%. Now, that is about five points less than Richard Nixon was the day he resigned. So I guess you could say to Mr. Bush, there is hope. <laughs> <laughs> there is hope. One can always go up again. Uh, now, of course, Truman didn't find, maybe he didn't need a Fred. He didn't find a Fred, but uh, there were two books that uh, some of you may have known. One came out during Watergate, plain speaking, by a fellow named Merrill Miller, which was a series of purported oral histories that he, he did with uh, the former president. And then the other, of course, was David McCullough's magisterial biography, which some of you may have uh, may have read. Now, along with several factors, including the—well, this is I'm now opining—the dumping down of curricula, creeping political correctness. Uh, which um, often tends to slight white males, and I must say that all of our all of our deceased presidents are dead white males. Okay, uh, and many many other things, teaching teaching history from the bottom up, and uh, things like this. Um, uh, presidents have I won't say fallen from the curriculum, but they've uh, let's say they've taken second place, except for the biggies, except for the you know, usual honor roll that we have. But given the, the presidents the presidency, the office, and the occupant still remains probably the most important individual uh, in the world. I was hoping we could find a better way of doing this. The public, general public, still seems fascinated with the presidency. I can't think of any other office. Uh, you can go to Washington and get president, president's paper mats, president's fountain pens, presidential lunch boxes. Uh, you just don't see this with speakers of the House. Yes, don't. And I was saying, you know, these poor commuters coming home from work, they are at least spared groping headlines that we see at the the presidency all the time. Imagine this. Group of experts proclaim Henry Clay greatest speaker of the House. Rayburn rated near great. Debate ensues as to whether Gingrich among the best or the worst, right? We just don't see it. Uh, Now, I must say, though, um, journalists are picking up this Lessinger game. Uh, uh, to my great consternation, uh, with this sinus problem, of sitting in a doctor's office. What do I see? Reader's Digest. Well, it's the only place you can find Reader's Digest these days. Uh, thank God. And there's, a, <laughs> there's an article there by um, uh, Carl Cannon. Uh, those of us know him better from the National Journal. And it's basically what kind of a president, they're doing a series on all the presidents. What kind of president would John McCain make? Well, uh, he then goes out and he talks to, he has his own little panel here, four, five, six, seven, eight people, and uh, three identifiable conservatives, three identifiable liberals, and, um, and two I couldn't quite figure out. And lo and behold, uh, on, a, uh, on a possible rating game, uh, rating of one for the worst, five for the best, John McCain comes in at a 2.9. Now, uh, I don't know what this is supposed to tell voters, <laughs> I really don't, but I think Mr. McCain would be happy to know that both Robbie George and I did better in less semester teaching evaluations on the same <laughs> kind of a scale. So, so here we are. <laughs> okay, so uh, now in addition to uh, stifling the discussion, which I talked about earlier, and the tendency to direct attention primarily to presidents rated either as glowing successes or monumental failures, some of the surveys. Purport to be quote obje- that purport to be quote objective measurements have com- camouflaged, not always consciously, the public preferences and political biases of supposed neutral evaluators. Now, as Calvin Coolidge, I have a thing for him, as some of you will discover. Uh, as Calvin Coolidge, uh, who most surveys place among the undistinguished, and who Schlesinger found wanting in quote lyrical outbursts. This is directly from <laughs> Schlesinger, when he wants to quote Coolidge, he says, in a rare lyrical outburst. Um, but as Coolidge put it in another speech, quote, unfortunately, not all experts are entirely disinterested. Not all specialists are without guile. Now, uh, there's one great story about Coolidge. Uh, you know he chose not to run again in 1928. And a reporter was going into his office and, of course, Hubert her I almost did what Harry von Zelda did. I almost did <laughs> <laughs> Hubert Heber, but uh, Herbert Hoover was leaving... Coolidge's office. And um, in comes a reporter. And he said, well, that was Mr. Hoover. And Coolidge says, yep. And he said, what do you think? He said, experts. What do you mean, Mr. President? For seven years, I've been listening to that man's advice. All of it bad, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think Calvin would have liked these, uh, quote, surveys about what the experts tell us. But here's where I think he made a banana something. I looked at Slessinger's rating. The briefest glimpse into where Ronald Reagan placed in Schlesinger's survey suggests that the panel Schlesinger convened was not perhaps as disinterested as claimed. Elsewhere, I've read an article about this before, but of Schlesinger's 32, I'm trying to jump through this because I want to get to the questions. Of Schlesinger's 32 panelists, several he, read, he readily admitted were known to espouse what might be called liberal democratic positions. Uh, some served as advisors to past democratic presidents and candidates. Several had signed paid advertisements in which, citing their professional credentials as historians, they argued that it would be contrary to the intent of the framers to impeach Bill Clinton or remove him from office. Now, I always think it's interesting that when we're talking about, um, we're talking about the intent of the framers, we're not supposed to look at this uh, regarding um, justice of the court. But we can do it when we're arguing about impeachment and what would Hamilton do and, and that kind of thing. Uh, well, anyway, no self or otherwise identifiable conservative appeared on Schlesinger's list, with the possible exception of Forrest McDonald. Uh, now, I didn't quite know uh, Do- MacDonald's um, ideology. I had an idea, but he then wrote a letter to the Times attacking the poll, pointing out that he was the only conservative given a ballot, so I found out that he was a conservative. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have known it from his writing. sometimes. Uh, appearing on the list of, quote, experts on the presidency, Schlesinger Poll were two former Democratic elected officeholders former New York Governor Mary Cuomo, <laughs> the real fair, fair judge of Reagan, right? Uh, and former Illinois Senator Paul Simon. The presumed justification were both were amateur historians and Lincoln enthusiasts. Okay. Uh, absent from the list were any of a number of Republican former officials, whether elected or appointed, with equal or superior academic credentials. Among the absentees I noted were William Bennett, Gene Kirkpatrick, Newt Gingrich, George Shultz, all holders of PhDs, and at least once in their career, full-time academics. Some even taught the presidency. Uh, I lament uh, i lament my failure to, to cite Nobel laureate Milton Friedman, who was also absent. Thankfully, I did include George Will, who has a PhD from this institution. Uh, also conspicuously missing, was on Schlesinger's list was erstwhile presidential advisor, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who in the words of George Will, uh, had written more books than most of his colleagues ever read. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, this is objectivity for you. So explaining the results of his poll, Schlesinger volunteered that jurors were left to decide for themselves how presidential performances were to be judged, okay? In their finding, though, he sees a commonality among the nine men who placed in the highest in the 1996 survey and the one his father conducted back in 62. These were Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Polk, Lincoln, Wilson, the two Roosevelt's, and Truman. All of them, he assures uh, readers, offering no apology to the first George Bush, uh, who used to talk about the vision thing, okay, but is that all of these men articulated a sense of the ideal America, and set their administration on a path toward achieving it. But to score highly on Schlesinger's panel, presidents had to possess a certain kind of vision, apparently. Uh, mostly it consisted of favoring policies that expanded the role of the federal government in, in domestic affairs, particularly economic affairs, at the expense of the private sector. One sees a less discernible pattern in the Big Nine's approach to foreign policy and middle engagements, uh, and military engagements, I will say it helps to win a war. It helps to win a big one. Uh, But uh, all of them weren't war presidents, as Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Jackson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt could attest. And I suspect if Arthur could have brought himself to do it, Mr. Eisenhower as well. But we'll go up. We'll pass that for now. When viewed through this prison, Ronald Reagan, whose sense of an ideal America, symbolized by the often mentioned city on a hill, was one that included less government and lower taxes, reduced regulation, a world bereft of an evil empire, and perhaps an America and a world free of nuclear weapons. His standard? Sense of the the ideal America and a path toward achieving it. Now that seemed to be like Ronald Reagan in spades. Schlesinger records, and here's here's where we get into the other difficulty with this kind of a rating. Schlesinger records that Reagan received seven uh, near-great votes. I assume one was from Forrest McDonald. Uh, some cast by, he says, liberal scholars impressed by his success in restoring the prestige of the presidency, in negotiating the last phases of the Cold War, couldn't give him credit for winning it, so in negotiating the last phases of the Cold War and in opposing his priorities on the country. He received, Reagan received nine below average votes and four failures from others, as tells us, who opposed um, Reagan's tax policies his view of the government as the cause of the nation's problems, and the increased deficits that occurred under his watch. So a majority of disinterested experts who chose to grade Reagan cast judgment on his politics rather than on his performance or objectives. Coolidge, whose portrait Reagan placed in the cabinet room, could not have said it better. Experts. Uh, (laughs) An averaging of Reagan's votes put him in the below-average category, one notch up from Chester A. Arthur. Precisely where Schlesinger's 1962 poll had put Dwight Eisenhower. Reminded of the the line from the folk song, When Will They Ever Learn? Uh, And uh, beneath Reagan now, beneath not only the first George Bush, but Martin Van Buren, Benjamin Harrison, and other luminaries. If only for the health of American higher education, one would hope that uh, some of these panelists uh, developed a better standard for measuring the performance of their own students. Does anyone seriously believe that Benjamin Harrison was a better president than Ronald Reagan? Or that Reagan was so dangerous to the country as to merit a grade lower, pardon me here, uh, a grade lower than James Madison, whose fate it was to preside over the burning of the White House and the Capitol at the hands of the enemy? <laughs> I mean, did anybody do any, any, any worse for the Republic? I just don't know. Uh, unlike in the case of the top nine, Schlesinger detected less commonality uh, among the jurors, among uh, excuse me, less commonality and how the jurors rated failures. Uh, he rightly asks whether the petty and other corruption that transpired under Grant and Harding, uh, and the the um, misguided policies of Buchanan and Johnson and Hoover, to say nothing about the constitutional indiscretions and transgressions of Richard Nixon. Uh, yet they're all put in the same category too, at the bottom of the list without any distinctions. Now back to Mr. Coolidge. Schlesinger and his panel reserved the guile to which Coolidge reminded his listeners that experts are sometimes prone for the advice he offered President Clinton as to how he might raise his grade in a second term. Let's see here. And now was the time, he said, for Clinton to free himself from polls and focus groups and to abandon the middle-of-the-road policies and practices that won in re-election. So, bye-bye school uniforms. Uh, in other words, Clinton no longer had any need to pretend he was a new Democrat that he had claimed to be. Now is the time to set things right and pour out the old time democratic religion, whether the country needed a healthy dose of uh, stimulation or not. Uh, and, uh, and so it goes. Uh, those of you who are interested in Clinton, I do, I do recommend uh, John Harris's book, Survivor. Uh, his theme, I was about to say, you know, Clinton was thinking of. Taking Arthur's advice, but as the other folk song says, but clouds got in his way. Uh, but those of you interested in talk about the Clinton second term, particularly uh, John Harris's book Survivor, the argument is that Clinton was was at his best when he played defense. He was at his best when he took on Gingrich to do what to pass the budget and reopen the government. He was at his best when it came to outfoxing the Republicans during the impeachment questions. But the big uh, riddle, as Fred asks in his own book, The, the Presidential Difference, is why a man with such obviously t- obvious talents left so little behind. Well, there have been, that's my opinion now, we can argue about this during the questions, uh, well, there have been many other attempts to improve upon the Celestia rating, I won't go through all the polls, I mean, you get the, uh, the general thrust of, of it, and uh, I'm trying to be mindful of the, uh, of the time here. Uh, so what I'm proposing to do is to look at a couple of things. I don't, I don't claim that it's scientific, but I do think it's an interesting little guide uh, that might not uh, be as ephemeral as some of these polls. It might actually give us something uh, to learn. By the way, I want to talk about. I talked about Coolidge. I don't want to pass this completely. Uh, Coolidge was not the only one who doubted the validity of surveys. Uh, another one was John Kennedy. You know, he starts off his book on Abraham Lincoln. Um, by reminding, him, reminding the audi- his readers that in the early 60s, during the Civil War centennial, he was asked to give a lecture on Lincoln at the White House. Kennedy asked to take him aside. And, of course, the first of the 62 poll, had already come out. And Kennedy says, you know, how could you really tell? You know, you and your colleagues, you sit here, blasé, uh, looking at this form, you, you just fill this thing out, you send it, send it in like you're, you know, applying for a... a uh, sending in a raffle ticket. I mean, how do you how do you really know what these guys were were thinking? Uh, no one has a right to judge any president. He said, not even poor James Buchanan, who comes always on the bottom as well, deservedly, uh, <laughs> unless you who has unless you have sat in his chair, examined his mail, and the information that came across his desk, watch and make decisions. Well, we can't actually do that with all of them. We can't make this uh, a preserve of only presidents, and we never have any evaluations, or they'd all come out perfectly. So one of the things I'm taking a look at are some of the things that um, they bring to office with them that aren't going to change uh, as issues uh, do. Uh, So I'm looking at character, which we'll talk about in a moment, political competence, uh, and vision. These are the lenses through which presidents organize their administration interact with subordinates and peers and the general public, and shape their respective legacies. Uh, uh, often, although not always, in ways that have given clues to how they might perform in, uh, in office, sometimes you get a glimpse in how they performed in the previous posts they've held, whether they be governors or generals or, or business leaders or whatever they, 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 may, uh, they may come from. OK. Um, I say issues change. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, Lyndon Johnson, and the current George Bush all began their terms as domestic reformers. Yet each is best known today for being president during a time of a major war. Internal components they brought to bear which determine how presidents adapted to new sets of circumstances I think are a better guide. Uh, Some such as Abraham Lincoln and Harry Truman rose to the occasion that they, they, they confronted. Others such as Andrew Johnson and Herbert Hoover probably shrank. It has been centuries since Heraclitus uh, proclaimed that a man's character was his fate. Such has been the running theme in the mountains of biographies of presidents. Would he not de- one need not delve deeply into the psychological literature to know what the term character conveys, even though presidents have varied widely in, in, uh, in, in character as they have in height, weight, ideology, and other things. Under the heading character fall all the old-fashioned concepts parents have, have attempted to instill in their young for generations, I think it's still a pretty good guy. What is character? Honesty. Doing what, doing what one said one would do, barring unforeseen circumstances rendering such behavior impossible or contrary to the national good. So if you uh, cannot do it, you tell the public why. You explain it. Uh, you don't just say, okay, well, I only said that when I was running for president. Uh, you know, I really liked Rumsfeld. You know, I, I, I was lying to you. I didn't, want, I didn't want the quote war to become an issue in the campaign. Uh, I I will give him a bad mark on that one, but on character, again, uh, doing what one said one would do barring unforeseen circumstances, rendering such behavior either impossible or contrary to the public good. Courage, a word we heard a lot from John Kennedy, meeting the adversity head-on, willing to take calculated risks where the national interest warrants it, willing to forego high approval ratings. Think of Harry Truman in that one again. Uh, He could have done a lot to raise his grades. Uh, he thought he was, had the right policies, he was going to uh, continue them, and history would, would judge him accurately. I think it has. Uh, integrity. Placing the interests of one's office or one's country ahead of personal conveniences or interests or those of one's associates. I think of that when I, well, later when I'll be watching the, uh, the testimony about the U.S. attorneys. This might be a way through this executive privilege matter placing the interests of one's office or one's country ahead of personal convenience or interest or those of one's associates. So when Dwight Eisenhower, for instance, says, I'm going to use executive privilege to shield thousands of files from the, the uh, McCarthy committee because I want to preserve the reputation of, of people in the executive branch. Uh, this is, I think, one of the most powerful chapters in Fred's book. He came to our class and talked about that. It's not the same thing as Richard Nixon saying executive privilege because I don't want you to hear my conversations on how we're going to try to uh, sell ambassadorships and pay uh, burglars hush money. I think there's a way we can make some distinctions here and try yet to, um, to compare and contrast some of our, our leaders. Yet uh, character's not enough. Some presidents with the most noble of character, US Grant, Herbert Hoover, come to mind. Failed for one of another component that was necessary for them to succeed. And that's what I call competence. But it's competence of a special kind. Um, uh, both Grant and Hoover had extraordinary competence. One as a general, the other one was an administrator. But in the political realm uh, is where uh, they fell down. Uh, this kind of competence consists of the ability to persuade others to follow one's lead, and the capacity to manage, manage a large operation called the United States government. Uh, so much transpires in the course of an administration uh, where people you don't know, people you didn't appoint, uh, they're slacking off, can do you in, uh, enter Katrina, or things of this kind. No one expects the president to be the, the, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, but they expect FEMA the to work. And when things don't work, you see what happens. Now, uh, the man for whom the building next door is named uh, Edward S. Corwin. Uh, His most famous line in his book on the presidency was that the Constitution was an invitation to the two branches to struggle. Uh, So how do those struggles take place? How does the president deal with Congress? How does he deal with the the, the judicial branch? How does he deal with the bureaucracy, the judiciary? None of these people he can fire at will. In fact, a uh, wise businessman once told me that uh, he described the presidency as, imagine uh, being the, the chief executive officer of a company, with all of your major competitors on your board of directors. Uh, now, now that that's the presidency. And uh, to sit, ar- sit around there and whining about it, uh, as Lyndon Johnson was tend to do, or sitting around trying to circumvent it, as Richard Nixon was forced out of office for trying to do, uh, doesn't kind of cut it. There has to be a way of trying to, uh, you the voters can use, in. Um, in uh, factoring some of these uh, candidates out before they do considerable damage. Uh, (laughs) Well then we have the vision thing. I mean I think this one is I think the easiest. I mean why do they want to be president? Uh, Why do they accept the presidency? Uh, What are the things they want to do now? Sometimes, as has been said about John Kennedy and the civil rights issue, uh, sometimes greatness can be thrust upon one uh, you have the Freedom Riders going to the South, they create a situation, and how is he going to respond to it? Uh, sometimes a president can rise to the occasion as Lyndon Johnson did, same issue uh, on the Voting Rights Bill. Uh, we just had the 40th anniversary of the March on the Selma Bridge. Uh, Johnson came before the, uh, he called a special session, a joint session of Congress uh, the night after the violence. He related uh, a story When he taught uh, school. I guess the one job he had was not an elected job or one of two jobs he had on the way up. He was teaching in a very poor Mexican school Uh, and these children uh, had absolutely no hope. A terrible family, background, uh, dirt poor, uh, subjects of uh, prejudice of all kinds. And Johnson said he thinks of them every day, you know, the power of the ballot. He always said if he had the chance to do something and I've got the chance and I'm going to use it. Now uh, that's one of the great examples of presidential courage. He'd only approached other issues with that kind of a, of a sense of clarity. The opposite was true of the war. No vision, no sense of, of where he was going, no ability to define it. But on this one, he understood it, and he understood that sometimes Congress could do a few things and make changes, permanent changes. And you know, That's why Johnson gives people a very hard time when they send them these ballots, because it's such a dichotomous presidency. You know, how do you keep the civil rights without the war? Well, Uh, The thinking coming from the same men. So one part of the brain, uh, and experientially, his entire life was spent with Congress on domestic issues. Uh, That's what he did. My favorite Johnson story was when uh, he figured out that um, Vietnam wasn't so easy. You know, you just can't throw another 40,000 men, another 40,000 men. And he goes to, um, I think it was Johns Hopkins, and he proposes the Great Society for North Vietnam. He proposes damning the Mekong Delta. Paul probably remembers this. And he was sitting around saying, you know, what does he want? You know, like you deal with a committee chairman. Well, somebody said, you know, he wants Vietnam. That's what he wants. I mean, you know, it's, hello. Uh, he'd never been turned down before. I mean, one of the ways he passed the Civil Rights Bill in 1957, those of you, well, I, I'm only assigning works by alumni today so, and, and professors here. Uh, so I, I assigned Robert Caro, class of 57, master of the Senate. I mean, he got these senators from uh, uh, New Mexico and Arizona, places where the, um, at least the African-American population was very small. He got them to vote uh, for Clouture by offering them dams and power and all sorts of things he did in his Texas district. Well, it, it worked until he got this, met this guy named Ho. He wanted Vietnam. He didn't want the dam. You know? uh, <laughs> he would have taken the dam if he could get Vietnam. But I mean, uh, Nixon the opposite. Okay? Uh, we think of Nixon, we think of, um, he wanted to be remembered, this is getting back to character, because I'm not gonna have time to do my own Nixon, I wanna, I wanna open it up to you. Uh, he wanted to be remembered for foreign policy, and not domestic policy. So he comes up with a way of doing domestic policy where, you know, pardon me, sort of out-Democrating the Democrats, this is sort of Nixon goes to China, but domestically. So this environmental movement is beginning, so he creates the EPA, and he beats them to these various statutes for um, clean, clean water actors under Nixon. Uh, but I, I could go on. Um, OSHA, uh, affirmative action, Philadelphia plan, uh, wage and price controls. But these are not things he believed in. These are things of keeping the opposition at bay. So he can, he can hang around with Henry, planning the trip to China, uh, and planning this great strategy with the And uh, The irony is that two things live after him. Neither of which he intended. Uh, we still have all these domestic programs, uh, like them or hate them. And because of the way he tried to preserve the secrecy of the Vietnam strategy and the China opening and everything else, you bring the plumbers in. the plumbers bring your Watergate. Watergate uh, you know not only the fall from Nixon, but you know you think of the plethora of things that uh, I call the Nixon Memorial, you know all the special prosecutor bills, all the ethics forms we have to fill out all the conflicts of interest legislation, uh, 30 years of um, campaign finance. That's Nixon legacy. Now, if you're running on that program, you'd call yourself John McCain. Uh, but the, you know, the Nixon legacy were things that were not intended. Okay? So um, I do think that there is, a, there is a role here for character, and there is a role here for vision. Uh, I do give him the vision on the foreign affairs side. Something happened to him when he was very young, uh, at least for a congressman so he was a, He was a young congressman and uh, he was that big freshman class in 1946. He was, these were the veterans, you know, came home, wanting to start their lives in a hurry. That uh, was a monumental class, it was a big class. It had John Kennedy in it, it had Richard Nixon in it, it had Mayor Wagner in it, it had Jacob Javitson in it. I mean, these are names uh, of the last generation, uh, many of whom distinguished themselves in many, many ways. And he gets uh, picked to be a, a small group under uh, Congressman Herder, a future governor of um, Massachusetts and a future Secretary of State. And the task is, herters running the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the task is to look at war-torn Europe, look at the Marshall Plan. He comes back, a, a committed internationalist in a party that had been isolationist uh, before the war, at least in his part of California it had been. Uh, and he comes out for the Marshall Plan. Now He comes out for aid to Greece and Turkey, uh, he develops a fascination when he's vice president with the Far East. And uh, a year or so before he's elected president, he has an article in Foreign Affairs about bringing China into the world. So there, there was a sense of vision there. And I think we can, we can probe this. And the only people probe it should not be journalists, because they always ask the gotcha questions. But I mean, you know, voters know where to look. And if uh, the right questions are asked, I think we can probe this. So we have character. We have what I call political competence. We have a sense of vision. And then, of course, there are some things no president can avoid. Uh, No matter how good or how bad, no president's going to get through four or eight years without dealing with the economy. By his actions, he will make it better or worse or at least stay out of the way. Uh, Enter Nixon and price controls, and and we're still sort of dealing with it. The inflation that came when they took them off, and I can keep going. Um, So I'm looking at the economy whether they made it better, worse, or left it alone. Uh, I'm looking at um, uh, foreign policy uh, and military engagements. And uh, I'll end with my, my favorite, because I do want some time to, to hear from all of you. Um, and that's, uh, for lack of a word, maybe you can give me a better phrase, uh, whether they expanded or, cons- cons- uh, or constricted freedom, whether they expanded it domestically or across the world, or whether it shrank. I'll give you a couple of examples. Sometimes even a failed president can do some noble things. Um, U.S. Grant. Uh, we all talk about Johnson in 1957. Uh, we say this is the first civil rights bill in 80 years. Well, who was president 80 years before? U.S. Grant. Uh, he sent uh, federal troops to break up the first Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he wrote to a friend, you know, this is getting to be a, a ritual. Every November there's rioting in the polls and we're sending down federal marshals. Now I'm um, I brought Ted Sorensen to my class last December, some of you may have been in the audience, and he told me when they wrote the 60, what became the 64 Civil Rights Bill, they looked at the 1875 Civil Rights Bill, and in many ways it was better. And uh, what happened to U.S. Grant? Well, uh, he lost Congress, and the Democratic Party at that time uh, was not very interested in the rights of African Americans, uh, and he could not have two competing goals. One was let us have peace, let us forget this unpleasantness which Barbara Sigmund, Paul's late wife used to say all the time, never said civil war She the unpleasantness because it divided the democratic party as well as the country and at that time the democratic party was the only national party so you can't have let us have peace and uh, what was very close to Grant's heart um, finishing the um, uh, the dolls of the war Uh, Jim McPherson uh, wonderful course, I wish you were still teaching it uh, it tells us about Grant's idea was basically uh, let the soldiers fight for their freedom. What, 250,000 strong, 200,000 African Americans in the Union Army? This is part of Grant's plan of uh, war by attrition. And he was not wanting, he's not going to sell them out. Not when he had control of Congress, he wasn't. And he saw what happened to his predecessor. He was not about to get impeached for sending troops down the South when Congress was talking about what? Cutting off the money. So a lot of these, these arguments that we're having, we think that we've invented them under Ms. Pelosi and under Mr. Bush and Mr. Bertha. I mean, we, we've been there before, which is why it's worth studying history. It may point a way out. So those are, those are my three things they bring with them and three things that happen to them. And why don't I stop here and, uh, and take your questions? I know you all wanted to say a few things. And, No, i come out. Okay, good.
1: Uh, well, our custom in Madison program is to uh, reserve the first few uh, minutes of question time for student questions. So undergraduates, graduate students, and high school students. Some of your former students from the Garwood course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. Who
0: would like to open us up? Oh, come on. You weren't shy in class. You're only shy yeah. now. <laughs>
1: Well, um,
0: I think you—I um, think in your—your your, um, mentioning number one, you answered your question. Uh, 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 by every one of these, you know, I, I know we can have a big argument whether it's Lincoln or Washington, but by every one of these these um, factors I cited, uh, it was George Washington every single time. You know, you, you know, we know that a lot of these stories are made up, particularly about the cherry tree. But they're made up uh, in order to teach young people the importance of virtue and the importance of character. And, uh, you know, we go to Mount Vernon and you said to yourself, my, this is the home of a millionaire. This is the home of a very rich, successful person. He didn't start out that way. You know, under the rules of, of um, primogeniture uh, which, uh, of his time, which was a British custom, that the oldest child got everything, got the estate, got the titles, got everything else. And the younger children had to go out and fend for themselves. And uh, he did not expect to be the landholder of Mount Vernon. He wanted a career in the army because that was another way of getting respectability. And a couple of things had happened through uh, circumstance and through his own work. A circumstance, uh, his older two brothers just happened to die, which is how he got Mount Vernon, which is sort of convenient for him in a way. Uh, But um, he decided that um, no matter how valiantly he could fight and how many British uh, uh, regulars he could save, In the French and Indian War, this is where he built up a continental reputation, there was this, uh, we call it, glass ceiling. It was only so high that a colonial could go in the British regiment. Suddenly, Big George discovers the meritocracy. There's something wrong here. Now, he'd be the last one to say that he was a, um, he was an intellectual. He was very cognizant of the fact that he didn't go to college and uh, made sure to have people around him, Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson, who did, uh, to correct his drafts and to, to, give him, to t- take care of his correspondence and things of that kind. But he learned, he, he, he learned uh, about revolution very experientially. He would go down to the House of Burgesses, he would listen to the debates, and he would say, yeah, you know, nobody has the right to pick my pocket without my consent. Uh, we should vote for these people. Uh, and he made himself... Uh, you know, he, They were very cognizant of the 18th century about how people think of you, what is your reputation, and reputation doesn't mean what we say it is necessarily now. Um, a role was something you became, and he spent about 60 years creating the role of Washington. By the time he was president, I mean everybody knew what a Washington was. Uh, he made himself, he studied etiquette, he studied uh, the rules of the court and other things. Uh, you know the old story, the story when he was asked to, when he, when, he, when he thought he was going to be asked to be the the leader of the Continental Army, uh, he designed his own uniform and he wore it to Philadelphia. I mean you know, same moi, same moi, but he never said a word. It was pretty clear, you know, everybody, that's where the expression let George do it come from. And through that person of Washington, he was able to stop a military coup uh, at the end of the war. Uh, Congress hadn't paid the army for some time. The, the, the officers thought that they could, they could uh, rebel. And um, he uh, puts on this uniform, he, he brings them all into a hall like this. Uh, he didn't have a sinus issue to worry about, but he, he had, uh, he had a, a need for reading glasses. So he has a statement to read and why they shouldn't do this to the Congress. And he puts the glasses on and he starts wiping the glasses and he starts saying that uh, he's not only grown old in the service to his country, but nearly blind. Well, that was the end of the coup. Uh, and, uh, and the reputation was such, the reputation was such that um, he made it, the only man I know, made a career out of resigning, okay? He resigned about five times, you know? He, he, uh, he resigns as soon as the, well, they're, they're okay, little, little local stories, and the, the Congress is sitting at NASA Hall because the soldiers and everybody else were rioting for their back pay in Philadelphia. So the Congress escapes becoming here. I guess they had a worse transit system in those days. No? Okay, so, so they're, they're sitting here, and word comes that the, they didn't have emails, you know, word comes that the Treaty of Paris has been signed. So he gets on a horse and gets out of here. First thing he wants to do is surrender his commission. And every time he surrenders a commission, he has another speech to give, some more advice to give. It's sort of like the a bar mitzvah speech in reverse. You know. Uh, and uh, he's looking back and he, he's saying what kind of a country he envisions, what his vision for the country you know, uh, is going to be. And then he, he first time in history, uh, 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 George III said that if Washington re- really is going to go back to the farm and not uh, take power, then he's the greatest man on earth. This is the man who just beat in a war. Then he comes back again, he's drafted back to the, con- the, the Constitutional Convention, and he goes through this big dilemma: should I take it or not? If I take it, uh, then, then, uh, then, uh, then there's going to be risk. If I don't take it, they're going to think the, the country, that I want the country to fall apart, and I like the articles. I hate the articles. So he shows, he, he shows up in person. And Madison uh, Monroe writes to Jefferson, who's still ambassador to Paris, France. He says, "You know, one single, one single soul save the, save the government that was the quote one soul save the government jump ahead 10 years jefferson says curse that man's virtues they're ruining the country you know <laughs> in the sense you know parties have now formed he said if only he weren't for his virtues i can't attack him adams is easy don't worry about it but as long as he's here i can't do it i can't form a party i can't take control so I, I would say, you know, and again, what is he, we, we remember the Washington farewell address. We remember the farewell to the officers. We remember, we remember like resigning, resigning, resigning. So I would say in terms of all the things I mentioned, uh, you know, Lincoln gave him a good run for his money, no question about it. But I, I would say each of these categories. Uh, I will take Lincoln at his word and say that it wasn't a foreign war, therefore I can't use foreign policy, but I can use military. Uh, so uh, I hope that's an answer. Uh, anybody else? Students first? Yes, Andrew. Yes. You mentioned really yes. Yes. Well, there's going to be. Of course, all these polls put James K. Polk in the near grape, but never tell you why. <laughs> right? They never tell you why because that's the one war we're ashamed of. I mean, right? I mean, Grant said it was the only war we, we, we took, um, clearly, for property. He says this in his, and, and he also calls it a racist war in his memoirs. And so, the fact that we were so dexterous in planning it, and in achieving it, uh, Polk ran on about four things, and he got everything done. I mean, he settled the boundary with Canada. Uh, he doubled the size of the United States. Of course, try theft if you want, but, but he did. Uh, he handled. He lowered the tariff, which was a big, a big uh, Jacksonian, uh, Jacksonian issue, and there were a couple of other things that he he, he did. There's going to be. A, I can't remember the um, the author. There's going to be a, a big Polk book out in in May, and we'll talk about it. Uh, Lincoln first. Um, well, I'll talk about du- duplicity here. Uh, I don't think Polk makes the character test, but uh, he basically orders the American uh, army. Uh, 100 miles uh, south of what everybody thought was the border there, and uh, they are fired upon. Well, we're going through this now with uh, Iran and the Brits, right? Well, so uh, where were they and who fired on them? Where were they standing? Uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Spots uh, Resolution. This is the great Lincoln speech uh, in Congress. And so uh, that belongs with Gulf of Tonkin and some other things, okay? But I would say Polk, you're going to hear a lot more about, and um, you know, there's a group. Of, we're not. There's a group of people that I hang around with, kind of eccentrics in Vermont. You know, well, everybody in Vermont is eccentric. But uh, the Coolidge birthplace is in Vermont. That's the famous place where uh, he was sworn in when Harding died. Uh, we're not arguing that he was a great president. He wasn't. Uh, but we're arguing that he was an underestimated president. He was not the fool that have come down to us in the history books as beings, no doubt about that. And if you talk about healing a country. Uh, uh, Harding didn't leave a country off as bad off as Nixon, but pretty close. I mean, Teapot Dome comes out right after Harding's death. And, you know, so there was nobody for, for Calvin to pardon since Harding was gone, he died. But, but he does some of the things Jerry Ford does. He doesn't wait for Congress to ask for the documents. He makes them all public, puts all the Harding stuff out on the White House lawn, basically. Uh, he appoints two prosecutors, a Democrat and a Republican, uh, to monitor... Uh, each other. Uh, he had enough sense to stay out of trouble, as he used to like to say. But in terms of trust, and in terms of um, you know those kinds of things, I don't think he deserves to be as low as he is. Doesn't mean he's a great president, but certainly an underappreciated one. I no? this
1: re-evaluation go the other direction.
0: God, I hope. Um, <laughs> uh, well, well, I hate to attack Princeton presidents, but uh, <laughs> I attack one. Okay. Uh, There's no question that Woodrow Wilson was an extraordinary administrator, there's no question about it. Uh, And uh, remember, we had not had American troops cross an ocean fighting on another continent in our history. I I suppose the Navy did in the Spanish-American War, but the idea of sending an army of two million men uh, off to Germany uh, broke the resistance of the Western Front, had enough sense to uh, uh, pick General Pershing and listen to him and all of that marshalling the war effort at home, uh, and then you know, the great idealism of the Peace Conference. But when his biographer was here, uh, John Milton Cooper, Paul Sigmund and I, and uh, some of you, asked questions about Woodrow Wilson domestically. Uh, OK, he might have been a product of his times, but he was a racist. Uh, he segregated the nation's capital. He segregated the nation's workforce. Uh, uh, there were separate water fountains in the Treasury Department for whites and blacks that were not there under Taft, and were quietly removed under Eisenhower. It took that long. And no one writes about this. And, uh, you know, it just seems to me that, that um, even if you control for his times, you know, I used to say, after I took Jim's course, that the, you know, the North won the war and went on making money and business and the Southerners wrote the histories. And uh, then you introduced me to William Dunning and uh, William Dunning, the the gone-with-the-wind view of the South. You see other reputations. You're seeing Grant come up. You're seeing Andrew Johnson come down. Let's talk about Jack Kennedy for a minute, Profiles and Courage. This is one of the last times uh, modern history has presented Andrew Johnson, not exactly in a good light, but Edmund Ross has given great courage for casting the deciding vote that kept Johnson in office. Okay. Well, that was 1955, I think, the Kennedy book came out. Well, by the '60s, uh, people start go back going back and seeing, well, what were Thaddeus Stevens and, uh, and Charles Sumner really doing? Well, they were doing what Lyndon Johnson would do in 1964. Uh, that's why Johnson uh, stopped them. That's why they wanted to impeach him. <laughs> and so Johnson's reputation is now falling. I mentioned that because, you know, it goes up because now Woodrow Wilson, academically, uh, was a uh, I don't think he studied under Dunning, did he? I don't think so. Not at Hopkins, but Dunning was at Columbia, right? Uh, yeah, I paid attention. <laughs> but, but seriously, Dunning, Dunning started this uh, view of the South. Wilson uh, popularized it. He wrote a very popular series in the history of the American people. And you read the section on the war. And his earliest memory was watching uh, Robert E. Lee come through uh, the, the town where he was growing up at the time. Uh, okay, how do you square this then? Then, Winter Wilson, because he was a great progressive, yes, he supported women's rights, yes, supported 8-Hour Day, uh, yes, he opposed Prohibition, he probably would have opposed the restrictive immigration clauses of the 20s. All that's yes, and that gives him very high marks. Created the Federal Reserve, uh, saw ahead in many ways. Well, what about the problem at home? Well, he made it worse, not better. And, and you know, one's tempted to, the dichotomy of uh, Nixon and Johnson, you know, if you could have, if you could have China without Watergate, if you could have civil rights (laughs) without everything else, but with Wilson, they they still don't do it, and um, when Paul pressed uh, Professor Cooper on this, uh, his comment was, well, he had a southern cabinet, and you had a postmaster general named Burley who gave it all the patronage, well, okay, so the things we like about Wilson uh, came from Princeton, (laughs) <laughs> and the things we don't like came from that awful cabinet. he was a strong president or not. He appointed these people. The Democrats hadn't had a president in 25 years, Governor Cleveland, and uh, they would have been so grateful to Wilson to do whatever he wanted. I mean, he, was not ele- he wasn't running on a platform of uh, uh, of segregating the government. In fact, the NAACP had uh, supported him because it- they thought that uh, the Republicans had sort of been where the Democrats are now. Which we used to like to say that you know, wh- one party. Uh, takes you for granted and the other party has no reason to ask for your votes. And that's sort of where the Republicans were. And Wilson actually asked for their votes. And the NAACP supported him the first time around. And, and okay, that's an example. The floor
1: is open. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. First term versus two,
2: the one term president versus two term president. kind of interesting. I think that one ones you see on the list usually two
1: terms and several Yes, sir.
0: Uh, well, I would say the case is out. I would say, though, uh, Washington, no exception. Um, so we don't know how Lincoln would have been in the second term. I suspect quite good. But, but um, second terms are uh, a, a funny thing. I can't think of any case where a second term is better than the first. Certainly not true with Washington's. He couldn't wait to get out, get out back to Mount Vernon. Not true with Eisenhower. I mean, less, less effective than the first term. Uh, well, Bush we pass over. But it's pretty obvious that, that the second term is not a great success. Clinton, pretty obvious. The second term uh, was not as not as significant as the first term. Uh, even Jefferson goes out with the embargo and and, and New, New England threatening to secede. Uh, so I, mean, I I I can't think of one. It's not an argument for a one-term presidency, but I do think in at least our time. And I remember all the two-term presidents we've had since Eisenhower. This seems to me they. They ran out of gas in the sixth year. It seems to me, and and you know, it's almost like a certain thing happens, and people want another face on television. <laughs> I, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, Polk was a very effective one-termer by his lights, and I don't know how you count Johnson because the, the it was his first term in his own right, but he did have that year and uh, year and a couple of months after Kennedy was assassinated. Okay, yes, ma'am. hmm pardon my French here, but, you know, nobody was as quotable as Lyndon Johnson. You know, he himself said that he felt like he had uh, abandoned, you know, the, the, the woman he really loved, you know, the, the Great Society, to go chasing, you know, that bitch of a war in the other part of the world. It was like, you know, I'll, I'll keep doing this so so I can have my Great Society at home. Uh, and he came up with the guns and butter, which was the beginning of the inflation that we all lived through during the Carter-Nixon days. Uh, his argument was an odd argument. The argument was, if I don't do this, if I become the first president to lose a war, then the, then the Republicans will, will, will say that I lost territory, and they, they did that to Truman, and I don't want to be the one who lost. Vietnam. You know, I mean, Eisenhower said no to the war. I mean it wasn't exactly, so you're, you're doing this because you don't want your opponents to hit you for not doing it. Uh, he was very depressed. You can read Doris Kearns' uh, Book on Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream. He was very depressed. He was having nightmares. Uh, he kept thinking of, she tells a story where he would walk down the White House vestibule and look at the oil portraits of his predecessors. He would always stop at Wilson's because Wilson had the paralysis and uh, he he saw that it was coming to him. Uh, when When you hear uh, aides talk about him laughing, crying, cajoling, and screaming in the same you know all, all within the same five minute interval uh you, you begin to wonder Lady Bird actually did ask i I'm, I'm writing a review on a book about Johnson now, and Lady Bird actually did ask uh, two psychiatrists to come in to, to look to him, look to talk to him uh, you know, like he thinks you're applying for ambassadorial spots, so you know he doesn't know right. And uh, <laughs> so they would come in and they would say, you know, mm, you know, he's not kind of out of it, but uh, yeah, very bad. To pr-. We know he started smoking again, which he had qu- quit during the heart attack. Uh, we suspect he was drinking again. Uh, and it, uh, it was a terrible thing. You know, I guess the worst part about it was he didn't believe in it. Uh, he did not believe in this. He did not think about it. He had no plan for what to do uh, what, you know, what defined victory there, but he couldn't get out, and uh, you know, if you believe in a war, uh, I think it sustains you more, at least you don't have to worry about the, you know, deception. That, and he knew about the Tonkin resolution, it was bothering him too, and, uh, but there is this thing about, you know, sometimes it's not just raw intelligence, but it's cognition. I mean, when George McGovern, someone I don't always quote, uh, <laughs> McGovern was elected in 1964 to the Senate, and he goes in to see Johnson. And he goes, I don't know about this. You know, When I was campaigning, we had this Gulf of Tonkin. I was not here to vote for it. It doesn't make any sense to me. So Johnson starts, he says, you know, the Chinese and the Vietnamese have been at it for a thousand years, more than a thousand years. I'm not so sure that it would be a Chinese puppet. Uh, maybe a unified Vietnam would uh, be a bolter against the Chinese. I don't know. So Johnson starts yelling at him. You know, I didn't send for a goddamn historian. You and Bill Fulbright, all you do is talk history. I got 500,000 men over there, you know. Well, well, why are they there then, Lyndon? You know, I mean, uh, (laughs) he never asked those questions. It was just another 40,000, another 40,000, another 40,000. I mean, I remember that presidency extremely well since I had a, a, you know, we were all subject to the drafts, and I had a a, uh, high draft number, but I remember... Uh, listening to our transistor radios and the, the well of a, li- of a of a college library as they were actually announcing lottery numbers. That was under Nixon, but, I mean, everybody thought that we were going to go. And, and uh, So, I mean, he, he he will go down in history with both of these ways, you know, a positive and a negative.
2: Yes, sir? the
1: instead of looking it up
2: myself. Is making a lyric outburst to explain why he decided
0: not to? Oh, that's easy. He never said so. But uh, I I don't mean easy to, you know. uh, He had a heart condition. He didn't last long as an ex-president. They tended to be less open about things than we are now. And also, um, a lot of people have discovered um, the importance of um, their home life to a presidency. Uh, He was one of three or four presidents to lose a child during his time. And uh, in 1924, during the Republican convention, Democratic convention, the one that went on for 108 ballots, uh, he had a a son that went out and played tennis uh, uh, and developed a a blister, and they didn't have penicillin then. He was gone within a, you know, a week or two. And uh, Coolidge said the joys of the office went out then. If he hadn't been renominated, he would have not run then. Uh, Mrs. Coolidge came out of it, but there weren't. You know, if you look at Coolidge as a governor. He's a very aggressive governor of Massachusetts. Uh, He was progressive, uh, interesting, he could change with the times, they're talking about Romney, but I mean he adapted. This was a, this was a progressive governor. This was a governor pushing all the things that Wilson was pushing as president. Anti-child labor, uh, greater inspections, greater regulations, uh, double teacher salaries twice when he was, when he was governor, Uh, a great hero to the immigrants, great hero to the Catholic community. Uh, he was running for mayor of Northampton, and he wrote in his autobiography, Bless their Irish hearts, I won by three votes. I know exactly those three people, <laughs> and I'm going to thank them tomorrow. You know? uh, but when the child died, uh, there was a real change in his disposition, and uh, we'll, we'll never know, but I, 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 it's not true in every case, but certainly true in his case.
1: Yeah. The, uh, uh, the principles of, of character and political competence and vision as you describe them uh, uh, look to me like they're aspiring to a kind of neutrality as far as one's concrete political judgments are mm-hmm. concerned. Uh, you can have uh, an honest person in the office who may be very liberal or very conservative. You can have a competent person who may be very conservative. Uh, you may be a liberal vision like uh, 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 Roosevelt's vision or a mm-hmm. conservative. you which is whether freedom extended or mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. here, it looks to me like um, we may have a problem.
0: You mean the current president? No, no. I mean, oh. the, no, I, mean oh. I mean, with, oh, the, with the category,
1: with the use of the category. Yep. Uh, I mean, if we really want the historians, political scientists who are evaluating presidents to do it on a kind of nonpartisan, objective basis, and, it, and it, it, it looks to me like if that's going to be a legitimate ground on which to evaluate, you run into an inescapable problem from the person who is evaluating whether freedom mm-hmm, has a left liberal understanding of freedom then it will evaluate the president differently than if he's got a, you know, a libertarian conservative view and yet again differently if he has the correct view the social conservative view or
2: <laughs>
1: the, the view that sees the social conservative view as the opposite of freedom mm-hmm. so it looks at that point as though it's almost an invitation to do what I thought you were complaining about <laughs> An invitation yeah. to import their own moral political judgments into the evaluation. Don't, don't we, we're mm-hmm. arguing for a situation, for, for a set of standards that would enable a fair-minded liberal historian right. political scientist, uh, uh, a fair-minded liberal to judge the same as a fair-minded person.
0: There's no question about it. Uh, the easy answer is that um, objectivity conforms with the author's view this case. But no, no, I mean, the Wall Street Journal, I didn't want to go through all the polls, the Wall Street Journal, American Federalist Society, I mean, two groups you would all think of as conservative, uh, uh, did their own poll. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, Franklin Roosevelt comes in among the near greats as he comes in among the greats and Schlesinger. is sort of a, a notch down, but he's not failure. They disagreed with him. Uh, it is possible. You know, they said, uh, did he expand freedom? Well, you know, getting rid, of, um, getting rid of Hitler was a big one, even for libertarians. Uh, we're not so sure about how he handled the Russians, but they didn't live long enough. So uh, term on balance, they probably still don't like the New Deal, but he came up very high in, in, the, in their poll. Uh, Johnson did not become a failure. Uh, interesting. They, they bought what I bought. Uh, that, you know, if there's one thing that, you know, will get Lyndon Johnson into heaven, it's probably that bill, the 64 Civil Rights Bill, that he he not run for election. He'd probably be rated very high. No war, none of those other problems. But um, so I, I don't know. Uh, take Wilson again. You know, even by an objective standard, uh, uh, was it a good thing to allow women to vote? I think so. Was it a good thing to try to constrain child labor? Uh, I think so. Uh, was it an eight-hour day a good thing? Even though, as a conservative, we don't want to regulate the. Uh, the I, I think so. Uh, but then you have to deal with, you know, in his time, here's the problem. In his time, uh, they didn't think about civil rights. I mean, these people didn't count. Uh, even among liberals in his time, you didn't see Walter Lippmann in the New Republic uh, asking him to do it. So in, in, even among liberals, he, this was not an issue that people talked about. In our time, I think, you know, you, you have to look at him and say there's a real problem here. Uh, go ahead. Um, More questions.
1: What about Reagan? Yeah. no. You know,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, on the domestic side of political freedom, there, uh, he was a libertarian. I don't see how he, you know, Reagan wasn't censoring censoring books and raiding libraries, uh, getting rid of the Soviet Union is probably a good thing. I mean, the Poles thought it was a great thing. The Czechs thought it was a great thing. The Hungarians thought it was great. He probably liberated more people than. Anybody since uh, Frank and Roosevelt wanted, you know, how many people were living under captivity, in some cases 80 years, some cases 40 or 50 years. But
1: that, libertari- that libertarianism mm-hmm. of Reagan's, which mm-hmm. on a conservative, a certain kind of conservative view would come as an expansion of freedom, on a certain sort of left-liberal view, is an attack on freedom. It, it, it's, it's reducing
0: freedom. Reagan maintained, uh, we can argue about this, but Reagan maintained that he was not trying to undo the New Deal, and he was not trying to undo the safety net. He was trying to roll back some of the excesses of the Great Society, which we haven't yet discussed. There are issues with Johnson on the domestic side that historians are beginning to look at and are beginning to wonder about. But, uh, but in terms of 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 uh, desegregation, you, you have to give Johnson that it, it changed the South. Reagan, I'm not aware that he took freedom away. But uh, if you want to give me an example, Matt or, or Robbie, it from the left of
1: oh, go ahead.
0: I don't know. Uh, he, said, he said as president that the one thing he regretted, of course he was president, and you have to say they're all politicians. Uh, when he was president, he said the one thing he regretted was that he opposed the 64 Civil Rights Bill at the time. He was uh, a Goldwaterite. Right. And uh, he said he regretted that. He changed his mind. Uh, William Buckley said the same thing, National Review said the same thing. They opined against it at the time. Paul Sigmund, if he's still here, debated Bill Buckley on that subject in the late 50s. What about the Oh, I don't think he... I think he would argue that um, he was tough on crime, as I hope we would all be. I don't think he sat, sat there and said, uh, let's lock up more African Americans, even if the, the numbers are what you say. Yeah, uh, this is tough. This is tough. No question about there, it. There are more than two, but there are No question there are about it. Yep.
1: about whether you're expanding or contracting I would agree. I would agree. you want the historian's vote to reflect the historian's particular point of view on that? They, they, on your first right three criteria, mm-hmm. the Republican conservatives can judge the same. Mm-hmm. But, but on this one, it looks like... Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I hear you. I hear yeah. you. Uh, no, I hear you. And it's, 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 uh, it's difficult. I don't think it's impossible. I'm mean, just want to think. There were two presidents that I could definitely say, and you would probably agree with me, uh, reduced freedom to some extent, and, and, and I mentioned, you know, when, when Wilson brings segregation into the nation's capital into the government. Okay, that's taking away something that existed before. When Andrew Jackson says, "I don't give a hoo-ha," he probably didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> what the Supreme Court says, the Seminoles are leaving. Right? Uh, let me set the table for you. Now, you all look at your twenty-dollar bills and joined my campaign to replace Jackson with Reagan or Coolidge. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the Supreme Court, the, the state of Georgia, uh, wants the Western lands uh, for settlers. Okay? And they passed a law saying the Indians have to go. Well, the Indians tried to, to contest this, and they weren't citizens of this country, they couldn't contest it. So they found a, a clergyman who was a citizen, who was teaching them English, uh, and, and uh, working with them to contest it. I forgot the name of the case, but there are a lot of lawyers here. <laughs> thank you, Wooster, thank you. And uh, John Marshall, uh, could, another candidate for the $20 bill. Anyway. Uh, John Marshall uh, says that, uh, you know, they have a treaty with the United States signed by my cousin, Mr. Jefferson. Uh, you can't have a state government uh, abrogate a federal treaty that uh, you know, they're protected. And the state of Georgia has no standing. So what does Jackson do? He sends federal, the federal, federal marshals of the United States Cavalry to carry out the Georgia law, the Trail of Tears, to force uh, these people to be re- relocated uh, to the Oklahoma Territory. Uh, it's a man greatly reduced freedom, as as I see it. And I think the same thing about uh, the one example I could find of Wilson. I haven't found too many villains in the White House who. who uh, you know, and then we talk about expanding the franchise. I haven't seen too many wanting to constrict the franchise. Uh, so, I mean... Um,
2: yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah,
0: go ahead. President 2 3. President number 3, um, in fact... Jefferson? Did, yeah, the two
2: things to restrict 3, well, several things. started with the fact that Jackson takes a lot of heat for a process for Jefferson. Uh, mm-hmm. So going now mm-hmm. So
0: Right, final right, right,
2: final war, right. The final one is, during the embargo crisis, um, with the exception of Lincoln, I don't know anyone that proposed martial law more thoroughly or completely mm-hmm. than Thomas um,
0: Jefferson. By contrast, his predecessor usually gets a better thing. Well, and having, having attacked his successor, I will point out that uh, fewer people were incarcerated while the war was going on, uh, the War of 1812 than were incarcerated during the embargo. Right? There was no martial law. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a new book on uh, perfect unions about Dolly Madison, about a woman was protesting the war, wanted to secede, she, she went down to Washington, she, she had let, let her, her braids grow down to her ankles, and she, she shows up at the White House, gate. Hey, what's that? I want to cut my braids and hang Mr. Madison. Right? You know, she got as far as the parlor. I mean, you know, uh, so it, it, nobody and nobody was molested. The White House was burned and he wrote the Constitution, he wrote the Bill of Rights, and he wasn't going to violate it. Now you can argue maybe he had a silly policy, maybe Lincoln's policy was much better, maybe the threat was probably greater, but but um, in a wartime, Madison was much more tolerant of civil liberties. There were no incarcerations like there were in World War II and Mr. Roosevelt, which is something I'd be weighing a little bit about restricting freedom, you know, it's it's hard. I grant it. I mean, nothing's easy. N- nothing worth the effort's easy, and and it's worth thinking it through. Won't please everybody. I understand what f- you, what you're saying because the free. You know, fr- Lincoln's point about freedom of the slaveholders. You know, uh, that um, uh, well, I, you know the quote better than I do, but uh, something to the effect about it's amazing that there are some who who demand the freedom to oppress others, but so be it. It's protected in the Constitution. I won't disturb it. it's worse to that effect. I think I have it right, at least the pat, the, the idea right. Ricky? Hey, good to be back. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. I discovered one was notion that all a
1: progressive Right.
0: Well, no one took him at his word when he, he said he didn't believe in freeze, he believed in getting rid of these things. Nobody took him at his word. I remember, I remember the freeze movement and it was probably very popular on this campus. We had a referendum in New Jersey, Christine probably certified it. Uh, it was a very big thing in the blue states, what we call the blue states. I suspect that given the problems he had with you know, how they characterized Star Wars, uh, they probably thought well, he, w- he was just a foolish dreamer. How could he be a, how could he be a hawk and some of the other things and leaving in a world free of nuclear weapons? Uh, I know that um, Doug Brinkley is bringing out in May the Reagan Diaries, and we'll be able to see if, if he talked about his strategy at all in that, I don't know. But he wrote himself a note every night, we know that. And uh, some of them are worth reading. I looked at some of them, I haven't read the whole thing, but it's gonna be edited and we might have an idea now. Yes, Bill. Hi. Hi.
1: I, I want to tell you that I have taken surveys. <laughs> People
2: yeah, organize them to I don't see any that. the evaluation I want
1: to change the
0: Yeah, we have to we have a little Mm. That's a brilliant observation to to close on. Uh, that is really amazing. In other words, do we get the presidents we deserve? Okay. Uh, back to our friend Mr. Wilson again. Let's talk about the failed treaty. Uh, you know, did it fail because of character, in which case it would be stubbornness? All right. Uh, did it fail because it was? Um, he was not competent because he couldn't handle Congress, couldn't make the case, couldn't change his tactics. Or let's deal with this. Um, did the American people really, in 1920, uh, want to give the right to send American forces into harm's way, uh, give that to an international body, which was what Article 10 was? Uh, and the argument Lodge made, you actually read the reservations, was. Uh, that, you know, Britain at that time, you know, we may not like colonialism, but at that time they had six votes. We had the two million men, they had lost three million men in World War Two, World War One. Germans I think five million. We had the army, we had the doughboys, and they had Australia, Canada, South Africa, Britain. Uh, well, uh, this came up, this came up with Mr. Truman. You know, you've got, you've got, uh, Stalin's got one vote, Bulgaria's got one vote, and, So they set up the Security Council. There was no Security Council with uh, Wilson's League. So the American people really saying, you know, yeah, we voted for you in 1916, and you promised not to go to war, all right? That's why we voted for you, right? Uh, He kept us out of war. Well, okay, so we had the war. Okay, you couldn't control that the the Germans were gonna resume unrestricted submarine warfare. So we took care of the Germans, Kaiser's gone. We're not so sure that we want to have we voted for a Republican Congress, and we're not so sure we want to have American boys sent by these six British votes without an act of Congress. Of course, you know unlike modern presidents, at least thes Congress for declaration of war, okay but uh, but so maybe it was your question. Maybe it was the people here, and maybe democracy does rule. Your other question is, you know, do we get the president that we deserve, right? Uh, if, the, if the mores of the country are at a certain point, uh, well, is the president, does the president reflect that, or does he try to change that? And Mr. Roosevelt tried to change that. His greatest years, I think, were from 38 to 41, where he thought, saw what was coming and he could push the country only so far. One could argue even broke a few laws to do that, but he saw it coming. He was trying to change it. Uh, or do they reflect it? And I think I'll yield back to you. No, that's,
1: that's well. <laughs>
0: right. I agree with that. Yes, I agree with that. Well, wasn't this marvelous? Thank you. <laughs> Aha! <laughs> well, thank, you. thank you. I will think very hard on the freedom.